Uh, this morning, uh, I would like to look at a passage of Scripture that relates to some things that Pastor Harry has taught here in Cornerstone in recent weeks, also relates to what we will celebrate tonight with the Lord's table, and really also relates to what we will celebrate together on Thursday, which of course is Thanksgiving, though for us as believers, every single day should be a day of thankfulness and joy in our hearts. That passage of scripture is John chapter 15, so if you want to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 15. I was talking with Callaway beforehand and just so appreciate even the music this morning, singing <clears throat> singing hymns like Be Thou My Vision and Amazing Grace, and then also that Getty song by Faith, just what a joy it is for us to sing the refrains that saints through the centuries have been singing. Be Thou My Vision is a hymn that goes back to the 6th century. Amazing Grace, a hymn that John Newton penned in the 18th century. And even that Getty song really was a song that goes back to Hebrews chapter 11 and reminds us of the joy that it is to walk by faith as we pursue and fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of the faith. But our passage this morning is John 15, and as I mentioned, it relates to things that Pastor Harry has recently talked about in Cornerstone. You'll remember that recently he has preached through Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower and the seed, And the mark of those who are the good soil is that they bear much fruit. And that is indeed what we see in this passage in John chapter 15, where our Lord says, and it's a familiar passage, I am the vine and you are the branches. And so I want us to think about this text this morning, and it relates to what we'll be celebrating tonight because this is a dialogue, an event that took place on the or in the evening hours, probably late at night on the night before our Lord was betrayed and crucified. And just moments after he and his disciples had celebrated the Last Supper together. In fact, the section in John that we're in, which is John 13 to 17, is known as the Upper Room Discourse these five chapters, because they relate to the events that took place in the upper room. Chapter 13 and 14 in particular are in the upper room. Chapters 15 and 16 as they move from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Christ, which relates to things that he prayed in the garden before he was betrayed. So, All of this, I think, fits very much with themes that we have been studying in Cornerstone and with themes that will prepare our hearts for this evening. And of course, it does relate to the theme of Thanksgiving, because when we think about the redemption that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, it ought to fill our hearts with gratitude. Now, just a little bit of background on the Gospel of John before we jump into John chapter 15. There are, of course, in the Bible, four Gospels. The three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were all written just within a couple of decades after the events that they described. So we estimate that the day of Pentecost was around the year A.D. 30, so Jesus' death 
and resurrection and then the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost took place probably April to May in the year AD 30. Matthew likely wrote his gospel just a couple decades later in the 50s, as well as Luke in the late 50s and Mark probably in the early 60s. So all three of the synoptic gospels written very, very close to the events that they describe. And of course, all four gospels written while eyewitnesses were still alive to verify the things that were written. And those three gospels, it's important that there's three synoptic gospels because the Old Testament standard of proof for anything is that it be accepted on the basis of two or three witnesses. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke provide us with that kind of verified eyewitness testimony. But it was decades later, near the end of the first century, probably around the year AD 90 or so, that the Apostle John, likely in his 80s or 90s, living in Asia Minor at the time near Ephesus, wrote the fourth and final gospel, the gospel that bears his name, the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is intentionally supplemental to the synoptic gospels. And so there are unique elements to the gospel of John. The apostle John was well aware of what had been written in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so he writes to provide supplemental information about the life of our Lord Jesus. And of course, even in his gospel, John says that if you were to write all the things about what Jesus did and what Jesus said, the book's Uh, of the world would not be sufficient to contain all that would be required. And that, of course, is true because the Lord Jesus Christ is an infinite person, and so it takes an infinite number of (laughs) words to express all of who he is. But I mention this because I think it's helpful to think about the Apostle John writing these words near the end of his life, reflecting back on things that had taken place when he was probably just in his 20s. We think the Apostle John was the youngest of the apostles, likely younger than Jesus and younger than the other 11. And he was, according to church tradition, the last surviving apostle dying around the year 100. So this is just probably 10 years or so before he goes home to heaven that he reflects on these events from the upper room. Events that, of course, marked and really steered the course of his life. Events that he never forgot. Events that he talked about often and events that he recorded so that those with whom he had immediate influence and then all subsequent generations of the church might benefit from these things. And I think about that even as we come to the time of communion this evening to celebrate the Lord's Supper, what it must have been like for John and the other apostles to celebrate the Lord's table in their own lifetimes because they were there at the first communion. They were there at the Last Supper And so for them to remember these things was intensely personal. And of course, for the Apostle John to remember these things was his great joy and his delight to express and explain them to others. And so John 15 fits into that context. 
Now, the Apostle John, as I mentioned, was probably in his early to mid-20s when the Last Supper was celebrated when, uh, or when the Last Supper took place, I should say, when the events of the upper room took place. He was probably in his early to mid-20s. But now he's in his 80s or 90s reflecting on these things. And we know from church tradition and from church history that the Apostle John, after spending a number of decades in Jerusalem with the other apostles, eventually went to Ephesus in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he spent the last three decades of his life in and around Ephesus. And you can see even in the book of Revelation, which was the last book that the Apostle John wrote, that the seven churches that are listed there are the churches that surround Ephesus and churches in which the Apostle John had influence. And I imagine the Apostle John talking about the things that are here in John 15 with the men, the disciples that he had gathered around him, those who were followers of the Lord Jesus but were from either the church in Ephesus or the surrounding areas, and he is writing these things for their benefit, things that he had undoubtedly shared with them time after time as he met with them and mentored them in the faith. And I mention that because there was likely a man there who would have heard John when he originally recounted these things, a man named Polycarp. Polycarp is one of the early Christian leaders, a second-generation Christian leader. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. In fact, likely the most famous of all of John's disciples. And we're going to talk a little bit about Polycarp in order to introduce this text. The the reason I, I mention Polycarp is he becomes a faithful pastor, a pastor of the church in Smyrna. In fact, Smyrna is one of the two faithful churches of the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. And it's likely that Polycarp was already there when the book of Revelation was written. But Polycarp proves to be faithful. He'll pastor for many decades before he also goes home to heaven. And he, as a young man, is listening to an elderly apostle, John, explain and reflect on these very truths. And and I love the fact that you have John explaining this and expressing this to Polycarp and the other disciples, but Polycarp in particular because the theme of John 15 is fruitfulness. That's a theme that also fits Thanksgiving, but maybe for other reasons because of the harvest nature of what we celebrate at Thanksgiving. And Polycarp, his name means fruitful. So poly means much, carpus in Greek means fruit. So Polycarp means much fruit. And I just think it's so cool that you have this disciple of the Apostle John hearing the Apostle John talk about what it means to be fruitful in the Christian life. And whether he was born with the name fruitful or whether he took on that name, we don't know. But what a compelling and appropriate name for any Christian to be named fruitful. So Here you have the Apostle John recounting these events from the upper room to his disciples, and sitting in that group of men is a man whose name is fruitful, and I'm sure he resonates in a particular way with the truth of this text, which is about being fruitful in the Christian life. 
And my encouragement to all of us this morning is that we all need to strive to be polycarps in the sense that we all must be fruitful as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, the context of the upper room discourse in John chapter 13, you have them meeting in the upper room to celebrate this final Passover meal. The Lord Jesus Christ is the final and perfect Lamb of God, the final Passover Lamb, the one to whom all of the uh, previous Passovers had pointed, and the one, of course, who will die as the final sacrifice to take away the sins of all those who believe in him. Judas Iscariot is with the twelve at that time, and Jesus not only will celebrate the Passover, but he will also wash the disciples' feet, an act of incredible self-sacrifice on his part and a model of what it means to serve others. And it's amazing to think about that he even washes Judas's feet, which is an incredible thing because the Lord, of course, knew what Judas was about to do. And in the middle of celebrating the Passover, Judas is exposed as the one who will betray Jesus, and he leaves. And so halfway through chapter 13, Judas exits in order to go and betray Jesus to the religious leaders. The rest of chapter 13 is about Jesus saying to the 11 who remain that he has a new commandment for them, that they love one another. And then into chapter 14, I'm going to go away, Jesus says, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. Um, He explains to his disciples they can't come with him now, but one day they will go to join him. And of course, he talks about the hope of heaven. And then at the end of chapter 14, it's all about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, Jesus promises that his disciples are going to remember perfectly the things that he taught them through the illuminating and inspiring work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit guarantees that even as the Apostle John remembers these things, that he remembers them perfectly. And then you'll notice at the end of chapter 14, the very last phrase in chapter 14, Jesus says, let us go from here. So chapters 13 and 14 are in the upper room. And then chapter 15, Jesus and the 11 have arisen from the Passover meal and they have begun to walk from the upper room down the Kidron Valley, across the brook, up the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. So chapters 15 and 16 are what Jesus is teaching them along the way, and then chapter 17, his high priestly prayer in the garden. What's amazing to me as we think about this is that even in the moments right before Jesus is about to be betrayed, to face unfair and unjust accusations, a total mockery of a trial, and then to be tortured in brutal ways and crucified for a crime he didn't commit, the one perfect son of God being killed, and in not only facing all of the physical torture and pain that that encompasses, but also uh, experiencing the spiritual ramifications of being the sin bearer. In light of the fact that he's facing all of that, Jesus' focus is still on wanting to serve and to help 
and to equip his disciples, specifically the 11 who are still with him. And so we come into chapter 15 with our Lord giving this amazing, this amazing analogy and the truth that flows from it as he talks to his disciples about what it means to bear much fruit. We're going to divide this chapter, or not this entire chapter, the first 17 verses is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to divide this passage into seven different sections. We're going to look at what I call seven facets of what it means to abide in Christ. Seven facets of what it means to abide in Christ. And we'll go through those as we work through the passage. But I think what we have to understand at the outset of this is that what Jesus is about to say is against the backdrop of the fact that Judas has just left in order to betray our Lord. Judas has been with Jesus for three and a half years approximately. He has been there almost as long as any of the other disciples. He was the one that was trusted by the other 11 to the point that they made him the treasurer of their group. And so he, from a human standpoint, looks like he is all in. He appears to be authentic, and yet he proves ultimately to have been a pretender and a hypocrite. And that is, of course, the point that Jesus will make in this passage is really differentiating between those who are authentic as followers of Jesus and those who are pretenders, those who are false professors. So we begin in verse 1, verses 1 and 2, with the first of our facets of what it means to abide in Christ, and, and this I call the picture the picture of what it looks like to abide in Christ. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. He prunes that branch so that it may bear more fruit. So we have Jesus using an analogy here, a word picture, to describe the relationship between true believers and himself in their union with Christ, as opposed to those who are pretenders but are not actually connected in any life-giving or vital way to the source of eternal life and the source of sanctifying life, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I imagine it that they had celebrated the last and final Passover meal and they had arisen from the table and they are leaving the upper room and as they are walking out towards the Mount of Olives that they are likely passing a vineyard. And as they pass that vineyard, Jesus uses this analogy, an analogy that is actually frequently found throughout the Old Testament to describe Israel And of course, Jesus here is using it not to speak of Israel specifically, but to speak of any of those who would claim to be his followers. The vineyard 
represents the, the visible community of those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. Those who are truly in him, who have been united to him in saving faith are those who have a vital connection to him. And that vital connection is demonstrated in the fact that they bear much fruit. In other words, those who abide in Christ are those who abound in fruit. By contrast, those who fail to bear fruit demonstrate that they are not in actuality connected in any vital or meaningful way, in any life-giving or saving way to the vine who is Jesus Christ. And so our Lord is going to use and elaborate on this picture of what it means to abide in him. And what do we mean by abide? Well, by abide, we mean not just to dwell with, but to have an intimate, saving, life-giving relationship that endures. One who abides is one who remains, whereas Judas did not abide as proven by the fact that he did not remain. So that's the picture. The picture is a vine and the branches. In verse 3, we see a second facet of what it means to abide in Christ. And this is what I call the prerequisite, the prerequisite. So in a passage that is emphasizing the reality that those who are truly in Christ will demonstrate or give evidence of that reality in the fact that they produce spiritual fruit, someone might conclude that the production of spiritual fruit is the cause of spiritual life. Jesus offers a correction to that wrong way of thinking. Fruit does not produce life. That's backwards. Life produces fruit. In other words, a tree is not alive because you pin fruit on the dead branches. No. A tree bears fruit because it is actually alive. And that's Jesus' point here in verse 3. Jesus is saying, the reason that you are connected to me in a vital saving way, the reason that you are abiding in me, that you have union with me, is because you have already been cleansed and you've been cleansed through the truth of the gospel. Now this, I think, harkens back to things that he said in chapter 13 to Peter when he was baptized, excuse me, when he was washing the disciples' feet You'll remember that at first Peter didn't want Jesus to wash his feet. Jesus, you can't do that. I'm not going to let you wash my feet. It's beneath you to do that. And Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And then Peter says, well, then wash all of me. And uh, typical Peter, he's you know prone to extremes. And Jesus says, no, you've already been cleansed. I don't need to wash all of you. I just need to wash your feet. Our Lord's point was that those who have been genuinely saved, at the moment of conversion, they are regenerated. That's a word that means that they are born again. They are made as new creatures in Christ. And in being regenerated, you are washed by the Holy Spirit. You are cleansed such that you have a new nature and you can walk in newness of life. 
That is something that takes place at the moment of conversion. The sinner is justified. That means he is declared righteous in the eyes of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And the sinner is simultaneously regenerated, meaning that the sinner is made a new creature in Christ and spiritually cleansed. So our Lord's point here is that if you are to bear genuine spiritual fruit, you must first be one who was cleansed by grace through faith based on the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, such that all who believe in him, his sacrifice pays the penalty for their sin and his righteousness clothes them in perfect righteousness. So the prerequisite for bearing spiritual fruit is that we have been converted. We have been cleansed. We have been regenerated. And again, the point that I want to reiterate, as Harry did so well in Matthew 13, is that fruit doesn't produce life in the same way that fruit doesn't produce good soil. Rather, it is spiritual life, a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus that causes and produces good fruit. And so this is not an emphasis or this is not a, on Jesus' part, this is not an attempt to suggest that good works are the basis for eternal life, exactly the opposite. He's saying, no, 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 it's a saving relationship with me that is the grounds for good works. So the picture is that of a vine and branches, and the prerequisite is that we are saved by grace through faith, having been cleansed through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The third point, the third facet of what it means to abide in Christ, verses 4 and 5, is what I call the power, the power of abiding in Christ. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here our Lord emphasizes the reality that the power that makes spiritual fruit possible is the power of Christ in us. It is what Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Or in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he talks about how it is God who works in us to accomplish his good will. And so, even as Paul explains in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, right? Verses 8 and 9, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any should boast. But then verse 10 reminds us that we have been saved so that we might walk in good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And all of that is only possible because of the power of Christ in us. It is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that makes it possible for followers of Jesus to bear genuine spiritual fruit. And so our Lord's point is that it is through abiding in him 
that we as branches who are connected to the vine are able to exhibit and to demonstrate and to manifest that which is spiritually and eternally fruitful. As believers, we have been transformed. And that's really what verse 3 is talking about. Through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we have been transformed. And because we have been transformed, Christ in us, the power of the Holy Spirit, his sanctifying work in our lives, enables us to grow in grace. And as we grow in grace, we become more and more like Christ, as the Holy Spirit conforms us into his image. And as we become more and more like Christ, our lives look more and more like his. And that's the wonder of abiding in him, that through him we have, by God's grace, we have been given the gift of growing in Christ-likeness. In verses 6 and 7, we come to a fourth facet of what it means to abide in Christ. And this I call the promise. And there's really two promises here. There's a promise in verse 6 to the hypocrite, and there's a promise in verse 7 to the one who is genuinely in Christ. And again, this is against the backdrop of Judas having appeared to be a follower of Jesus, but proving in the end to have never been converted. And yet Jesus is saying this, of course, to the 11 who remain. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Let's stop there for a moment. This is the promise to unbelievers. This is the promise to spiritual hypocrites. This is the promise to those who on the outside appear to be vines in the vineyard, but they have no actual life-giving vital connection to the true vine, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the promise? The promise is that their hypocrisy will be exposed and that they will face divine and eternal judgment. And this is a warning for anyone who would profess to know Christ and yet through their behavior, they would exemplify that which is contrary to what the Lord requires. In other words, the fruit of their life does not match the truth or the uh, does not match the claim. That's a better way to say it. Does not match the claim of their profession. And what a, I don't want to dwell on it too long, but what a sobering warning it is because what our Lord is describing here, of course, using the analogy again of branches that are unfruitful, it is the analogy of, from agriculture, of getting rid of that which is not bearing fruit, but it is used to illustrate the reality of divine judgment. And we know from the book of Hebrews, of course, that it is appointed for men once to die and then comes the judgment. And it will be on that day that all hypocrisy is exposed for what it is. Now, in contrast to that, there's a second promise. This is the promise that's given to those who are genuine believers in verse 7. If you abide in me, so if you have that vital life-giving connection to the true vine... 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Uh, It's important to caveat this promise within the context in which Jesus gives it. Obviously, when Jesus says you can ask whatever you want and it will be done for you, he doesn't mean that you can ask for all sorts of material possessions and God as some sort of cosmic genie is going to give you whatever you wish for. Uh, Jesus has said similar things in the middle of chapter 14, verses 10 to 13. He'll say something similar again a little bit later in this chapter. And his point is within this context of wanting to be those who bear spiritual fruit, if you ask him to increase your fruitfulness, he will answer that request every single time. And we're going to see in the next verses that the the primary fruit that's being talked about here is the fruit of love. Love for God and love for others. And so the promise here is that in your Christian life, as you are seeking to grow in Christ's likeness and to grow in grace, if you ask for him to make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ, if you ask for his spirit to have a greater work in your heart as the spirit grows you in grace, if you ask for your own heart to be increasingly submitted to his word, if you ask for those things, he will give you what you ask. And so it is a prayer for spiritual growth that Jesus promises here to answer. So if you ask for whatever you want within the context of being fruitful as a follower of Jesus, he is happy to grant that request. So the future for the hypocrite is judgment, but the promise to the genuine follower of Jesus, the true believer, is that as you grow he in grace, He is pleased to give you greater and greater and greater grace so that the depth of your love for him only deepens and deepens the longer you walk with him and the closer, um, the, the longer that you walk with him and the more and more that he conforms you into his own image. You know, I think it's interesting, just one comment on verses six and seven is that you really see in those verses the same contrast that we have, for example, in Psalms like Psalm chapter 1, where in Psalm 1, the one who loves the law of the Lord is like a tree firmly planted by waters, and his fruit comes forth, he bears fruit in every season, his leaf doesn't wither. That's really the promise of verse 7, but the wicked are not so, they're like the chaff, which the wind drives away and they will not stand in the judgment. That's the promise of verse 6. Okay, we go then from the picture of what does it look like to abide in Christ. It's like a vine and the branches that have a vital life-giving connection to the source of eternal and sanctifying life. What is the prerequisite? It is that we are Converted, that we are saved by grace through faith, having been transformed through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. 
What is the power that comes to us? It is the power to bear fruit, not in and of ourselves or by our own flesh, but the power of Christ working in us. And what is the promise? The promise to spiritual hypocrites is that they will be exposed, but the promise to followers of Jesus is that he will continue to give to them abundantly as they grow in their love for him. That brings us then to a fifth facet of what it looks like or what it means to abide in Christ, and this I call the proof, the proof of abiding in Christ in verses 8 through 11. And here's what Jesus says, verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you, have been, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. I think it's interesting there in verse 8 that Jesus emphasizes the idea of proving to be his disciples. Really what he is saying is that the proof of genuine discipleship is evidenced in spiritual fruit. Again, it comes back to the theme that we've emphasized this morning, that those who abide in Christ abound in Good works. They abound in spiritual fruit. We prove to be his disciples by exhibiting spiritual fruit. In other words, we give evidence to the reality that we have been transformed and that we are new creatures in Christ when our lives give sort of evidence to or manifest that reality in how we live and in how we walk. Now, someone might ask the question from verse 8, well, okay, verse 8 is about having life in Christ. Well, how, how do I know if I have life in Christ? How do I know if I abide in him? How do I know if I am one of his disciples? And I think verses 10 or 9, 10, and 11 really answer that question for us. Verse 9 emphasizes the primary fruit the primary fruit, which is the fruit of love. And so we might answer the question, how do I know if Jesus is my life, by asking the subsequent question, well, is Jesus your love, right? Because verse 9 emphasizes that those who are his disciples manifest the truthfulness or reality of that in the fact that they love the Lord Jesus. And then someone might ask a subsequent question, Subsequent question, they might ask, well, how do I know that Jesus is my love? And Jesus answers that question in verse 10 by emphasizing that the one who loves him keeps his commandments. And so we might answer that question by asking a third question, and that is, is Jesus my Lord? So the three questions that we might ask from this particular section in this passage is, number one, is Jesus my life? Well, in order to answer that, I have to ask, is Jesus my love? And in order to answer that, I have to ask, is Jesus my Lord? Because if Jesus is my Lord, then he is my love. And if Jesus is my love, then he is my life. 
Another way to think about it is to connect verse 8 with discipleship, prove to be his disciples. Verse 9 with devotion. The devotion of a true disciple is that that disciple loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10 with demonstration. The demonstration of that devotion is that we walk in obedience to his commandments. And then verse 11 is the delight that characterizes all of it because this is not the drudgery of a duty that we don't like, but instead it all flows out of a heart of joy because his joy is in us if we are in him. And so those who prove to be the disciples of the Lord Jesus are those who are devoted to him in love, who demonstrate that through loyalty and obedience and allegiance to him, and who delight in the, in the opportunity that they have to follow him in all of these things. But I think it's a helpful series of questions going back to those three questions for us to ask ourselves as we assess our own hearts, as we think through what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. The questions that we ask ourselves are not, Simply, have I made a profession at some point in some past time? It's at this very moment, is Jesus my Lord and is Jesus my love? And if the answer to those questions are yes and yes, then you can walk away this morning praising him that he is your life. Because only those who have Jesus as their life can honestly say that he is both their love and their Lord. Well, that brings us to a fifth facet in my list of seven. We go from the proof to the practice, the practice of what it means to abide in Christ. Verses 12 to 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Sorry, that's verse 10. Verse 12. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends For all things that I have from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. I went a little bit beyond verse 15 there. I went to verse 16. But verses 12, 13, 14, 15 really outline for us the practice of what it looks like to abide in Christ. Right, So if the proof of abiding in Christ is love for Christ and loyalty to him and the joy of serving him, the practice of that, the practical implications of that are twofold. The first in verses 12 and 13 is that genuine believers, those who are truly connected to the vine, they are characterized by a sacrificial care for other people. They're characterized by a sacrificial care for other brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We see that in verse 12. Jesus uses himself as an example. Greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. And uh, verse 13, again, he emphasizes the fact that, or excuse me, verse uh, 13 is the illustration. Verse 12 is the actual imperative. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And so we see that first expression then of what it looks like practically speaking to live in light of the reality that we are in Christ. Those who are in Christ are characterized by a love for one another. And that love for one another is illustrated in the greatest possible fashion by Jesus himself, him saying this just hours before he was going to die on the cross. And then verse 14 and 15, a second really expression of what it looks like, practically speaking, to live in this way. I call this the submissive uh, submissive affection for the Lord Jesus. So we have a sacrificial care for one another and a submissive affection for the Lord Jesus. You are my friends if you do what I command you, and no longer do I call you slaves, but friends. I think it's interesting that Jesus says, you are his friends if you do what he says to do. And so the point is that we are those who have a genuine affection for our Lord. He is our friend, and yet it is a submissive affection because we are those who do what he commands us to do, and we do what he has revealed for us to do because as verse 16 makes clear, he has revealed to us all that we need to know from the Father. All right, that brings us then uh, from the practice finally to the purpose. So we started with the picture in verses one and two, and then the prerequisite in verse three, the power in verses four and five, the promise in verses six and seven, the proof in verses eight through 12, the practice in verses 12 to 15. So the proof in verses 8 to 11, the practice in verses 12 to 15, and then finally the purpose for our union with Christ in verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to read verse 16 again, even though I got ahead of myself earlier. And It's all inspired, right? It's the text of Scripture. God's part is inspired, for the record, not my part. Okay. <clears throat> Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And this I command you, verse 17, that you love one another. So here we have again that promise, whatever you ask in his name, God will give it. But it's again in the context of bearing fruit, and specifically in light of verse 17, bearing fruit in the way that you care for other Christians, the way that you love others who are part of the body of Christ. But I want to look and focus in on the first part of verse 16. Jesus here talking to the 11, but by extension talking to every Christian. Why is it in God's sovereign plan that he chose any of us to be part of the true vineyard, those who are vitally and savingly connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The answer is not so that we could just sit around and do nothing. The answer is so that we would bear fruit, so that we would bear much fruit as a testimony to his transforming and life-giving and sanctifying power. The redemptive work of the Lord Jesus, which he is about to accomplish just a few hours after delivering this instruction to his apostles, makes it possible for us who are sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. And then through the transforming work of his spirit, he grows us into the image of Christ. And we then become an, we become an everlasting testimony to his grace. And even in Romans chapter 11, when Paul talks about election and he talks about the fact that those who are redeemed were chosen and they were chosen to be a trophy of God's grace. So the reason you were chosen was not so much for you. It was so that through you, God's power might be put on display that In his son, he has reconciled sinners to himself and through his spirit, he has conformed them into the image of his son so that for all of eternity, we will be those who reflect his character and are trophies of his grace, which is just a wonderful truth for us to consider, especially as we think about Thanksgiving. So abiding results in abounding. Those who are in Christ are those who demonstrate the reality of a transformed life by bearing fruit. And that fruit shows up primarily in love, which is an internal reality that expresses itself in sacrificial care for others and in submissive affection and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement to all of us this morning is even as we celebrate a harvest festival on Thursday, let's think about our own lives and ask ourselves the hard question, is my life bearing fruit to the glory of Jesus Christ? And we began this morning talking a little bit about Polycarp, this man fruitful. And I wanted to close our time this morning by coming back to Polycarp. So Polycarp, as I mentioned, was a disciple of the Apostle John. The Apostle John died around the year 100. Polycarp continued to pastor the church in Smyrna for another 55 years after that. He was not martyred until the year 155 when he himself was an old man. So much like John had been an old man when Polycarp was young, now Polycarp was an old man pastoring in Smyrna. And at that time, to be a Christian was illegal, and there were those in Smyrna who were angry at the Christians because people kept converting to Christianity, and so um, the economy was affected by the sale of idols and those kinds of things falling off. any case, Polycarp was denounced to the authorities. He was 86 years old at the time, and he was arrested, and he was hauled before the Roman governor. In fact, when the soldiers came to arrest Polycarp, Polycarp welcomed them into his house and fed them dinner, which was just an amazing act of hospitality. And while they were eating dinner, Polycarp was praying that he would be faithful even to the end. And when he stood before the Roman governor, the Roman governor pled with him saying, hey, you're an old man. 
Think about your old age. Why don't you renounce Christ and I'll have mercy on you? And Polycarp, of course, refused to renounce Christ. The governor threatened him with fire and with wild beasts. Uh, When he was threatened with fire, Polycarp said, you threaten me with flames that last but for a moment, but there is waiting for those outside of Christ flames that last for eternity, which was quite the response. Famously, when he was asked to recount, Polycarp said this. He said, 80 and six years have I served the Lord Jesus and he never did me any injury. How then could I now blaspheme my savior and my king? Polycarp died that day. He was burned at the stake. And then eventually also he was, um, they, a Roman soldier when he wasn't dying fast enough pierced his heart with a sword. But the point is this. Here's a man whose name was fruitful, who heard the Apostle John talk about the things that we talked about this morning as John reflected on this upper room discourse. And this man, fruitful, lived not only a fruitful life, but a faithful life, even to the moment of being a martyr, from a Greek word that means witness, to Jesus Christ unto death. And when Polycarp left this earth, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and was immediately ushered into the presence of Christ, I have no doubt that the Lord Jesus said to him, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. That's the hope that awaits all of us who are in the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us who give evidence of that reality by walking in a way that reflects his character and gives him all the glory. In the words of Harry Walls, can you say amen to that? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this truth from John 15. May our hearts overflow with joy because of our love for you and our delight in following your commandments. Thank you that your son, the Lord Jesus, died on our behalf so that we might have life in him. He is the true vine, and only through Only through him and our union with him can we be forgiven and given the hope of eternal life. May that be true of all of us, and may we walk in newness of life even this week. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Have a great Sunday.